0: Hello, I'm John Meacham, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity in American Democracy, and I'd like to welcome you to Unity Talks. This is a series of conversations hosted by the project's co-chairs with experts from the media, the academy, and government on the challenges facing American democracy. Here at the Vanderbilt Project on Unity in American Democracy, we're seeking to restore and reinvigorate the national discourse, supplanting reflexive partisanship with reflective citizenship, anchored on facts and evidence. As you'll see in these episodes, a unity of opinion in an open democratic society is impossible. A unity of purpose, however, is achievable and necessary. Hopefully, these conversations, hosted by me and by former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam and Vanderbilt's Summer Ali, will reinvigorate our shared commitment to American democracy, and remind us of our obligations as active participants in this unfolding American experiment.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second of our summer series on Unity Talks. I'm Bill Haslam, used to be governor of Tennessee uh, and now one of the co-chairs of the Vanderbilt Project for Unity in America Democracy. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you all live in here with us. as we as they'd say in talk radio i'm, I'm a long time uh, listener and a first-time caller uh, i've been a fan of his for a long time uh, i read his book uh, a time to build which i highly recommend uh several years ago uh but uh, uh Yuval was a member of the bush 43 white house team yeah, he's now a senior uh, opinion writer uh, for the New York Times, as well as a senior fellow for the American in- Enterprise Institute. So wonderful background, has a lot to talk about. You've all welcome, and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm a longtime fan too, so this is great.
1: <laughs> so let me let me start this. Uh, I, I guess a couple months ago, you wrote an article in the New York Times uh, called "Why Do Our Politicians Keep uh, Pursuing a Losing Strategy?" and One of the things that I always think about uh, and try to explain to people who've never been in politics is there is nobody coming up with a long term strategic plan for your political party. Uh, There are no senior party elders who are listened to the wise people in the back room. We don't live in that world anymore. So talk a little bit about what the losing strategy is that both parties are pursuing uh, and how we got to be that way.
2: Yeah, it's a really striking thing if you step back from our politics in this moment and ask yourself, what are these parties trying to do? Uh, as you say, there's no one who actually is in charge of offering an answer to that question. One of the things you learn in politics uh, is that people don't have, you know, four steps ahead kind of plans. They're trying to get through this afternoon if they can help it. And what you find when you kind of step back from the everyday in our politics is that in a sense, for a long time in America, we've had two minority parties. We've had two parties that are barely eking out elections when they do. And that the the most significant thing about their relationship with the public is that voters don't like them very much. And when they win, it's because voters didn't like the other party even more. Now, the job of the party as a party is to build a durable, broad coalition, as broad as it can be within certain constraints of what the party as a whole wants to do. It should reach out to new voters. It should try to persuade people who are not persuaded. It should try to find ways to broaden its tent. But if you look at what the parties are doing now, they actually at times both seem to want to be minority parties. They're both working to stress those things about their agendas and their coalitions that are least attractive to persuadable voters. And you have to wonder, why would they be doing that? These are not stupid people by any stretch. They're ambitious. They're intelligent. What are they up to? And when you look at the dynamics of our politics now, it turns out that the, the incentives that they confront are basically incentives to double down on a narrow coalition. We have lived through now 30 years, really since the early 1990s, of a 50-50 politics where there is not a durable majority party, there's not a durable minority party, each thinks it can win the next election if it just gets all its voters out. And to get those voters out, it has to double down on what its most devoted voters want, rather than trying to appeal to the middle, to persuadable voters who aren't sure what they want. And the trouble is the parties aren't wrong to think this. The way that our dynamics work now, you actually can win this way, and either party actually could win the next election.
1: It it have been back and forth for a while.
2: And it's been back and forth. What really stands out about this time in American politics is that back and forth. Usually, if you look at our history, At any given time, there's a majority party for 20 years, 30 years, 35 years, and a minority party, and then there's a realignment, and the minority becomes the majority for some extended period of time. But for us, since about the early 1990s, things have swung back and forth. The presidency has gone back and forth every two terms, sometimes one, and Congress has gone back and forth more than at any other time in American history. The only comparable period, really, is at the end of the 19th century. And that time felt a lot like this one. It was very divided. It was 50-50 for 20 years at that point. We've already seen 30 years of it. And that time proved very, very difficult for our political culture. It was hard for the country to modernize its government. It was hard for politicians to recognize what voters wanted because they always thought they were on the verge of winning big if they just did the same thing over and over again. And that's what we find this time. A party just barely loses and what it says is not what do we do different to win next time, but let's do exactly the same thing, and next time we'll just barely win. And the incentives that creates have a lot to do with our polarized politics at this point.
1: So here's the interesting question to me: is you're, that that is the history? And I think we've gone eight or nine presidential elections where nobody's won by double digits, which is like right. I think the longest in history. Yep. Um, But not only do do we have people who barely win, they then tend to steer hard to their side of the road, right? And the result is then we have a bounce back, as you've shown in midterm elections, and we so we're we're kind of careening from guardrail to guardrail, if you will. What's what's making that happen? Why are so many uh, politicians and I can, as a as a recovering one of those myself, I can I can ask the question. Yeah, we tend to. To overreact, we won. So let's, let's steer hard to our side.
2: I think there are a couple of things going on there. One is the sense that you win by getting your people out rather than that you win by appealing to persuadable people. And to get your people out, you got to show that you're delivering. And so if you win power, you've got to show the activists in your party that it's worth being there for you again. But the second variable, which wasn't there the last time we had this kind of period of back and forth, is party primaries. Primaries really only began in the 1970s. There were some beginning in the progressive era, but both parties adopted primaries for Congress and then for the presidency only in in the 1970s. And the result of that is that in order to become the nominee of your party for Congress, for governor, for president, you have to appeal to that narrow sliver of the party that's going to show up on primary day. And that means that in a lot of places, this is particularly true in congressional races, where the district is safe and the real election is the primary, your electorate is that 10% or so of people who live in the district who are going to show up on primary day for your party. And that means that when you think about what voters want, you're thinking about a very narrow sliver of voters. And one of the dynamics that this has created is that both parties now think about governing in terms of spending political capital, frantically before they lose the ability to spend it. Rather than thinking about governing in terms of building political capital, using the fact that you've won an election to broaden your appeal, to offer something to new voters, to try to stretch the reach of your coalition, you instead are very focused on those most devoted voters, the ones who are gonna determine whether you win the primary next time. And the, the, the incentives that creates are incentives for this kind of, of intense polarization. Polarization at 50-50 is really deadly to a politics of unity because it doesn't give either party the incentive to appeal to persuadable voters and therefore to be inviting, to be persuasive. Ultimately, when you're trying to win over voters who don't already love you, you end up being more attractive, more appealing. You speak to the middle more. When you're trying to keep voters who are most intensely devoted, you end up turning off those voters you might otherwise win. And so the incentives create the, the 50-50 situation we've got. And I think the thing to notice is there's actually a huge opportunity here for the first party to recognize that it could build a broader coalition. You're not going to win 49 states in a presidential election like Ronald Reagan did. That's not going to happen right now in America. But you could win 58% of the vote. That's, that's, that could happen. And that could only happen if you appeal to those middle of the road voters, assuming you're going to win your most devoted voters. They're not going to go for the other party. What can I say to the middle? That question is not enough on the the minds of either party right now. And I think that the first party to see that it should be asking that question actually could be a durable majority again in American politics, which we haven't seen in a generation.
1: Well said, and, and I happen to strong to strongly agree with what you said. But you also have been in, the, like I said, you've been a part of a White House team, and I know from being in office, um, you're not nearly as strategic as you would like to be because yep. you're. I mean, we're trying to figure out what what are we going to do to hire enough prison guards, or to get that bill through the legislature, or to improve third grade reading scores, or whatever it is that Absolutely. you're. Working. I always say that politics is is a little like alcohol. You think it makes you smarter, but it really doesn't because you're <laughs> you're just in the middle of it. OK. And so I guess the if you know, take yourself back, however many years you're in the Bush White House and you're trying to uh, I can't remember if you were there first or second term or both. But assume it's first term. And you're trying to say, I think we can have an enduring majority if we do these things. What's the argument you'd make because the, the voices of saying no, double down, double down are so strong?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the argument begins from the fact that what we're doing now isn't working, which in a way is the hardest thing for both parties to recognize that at the moment you're failing um, and that these kinds of barely eking out elections at 50 percent plus one is not a durable way to achieve anything in American politics. Secondly, behaving this way contributes to the kind of division that makes it hard for anybody to govern. And that's something that speaks to a president of any party, the sense that the country is so divided that people feel like they cannot trust anybody and that ultimately that makes it impossible for governing to function. The question has got to be how do we change the dynamics of that situation? And I think the argument I would make is that ultimately we've got to create a a circumstance where we are trying to be inviting and appealing to as broad a swath of the country as possible, both for political reasons and really for civic reasons, so that people can see their government as trying to do what they need and what they want, regardless of who they are and where they're situated in our society. That's, as you say, easy to say in the abstract, and it's easy to say at a distance. It is, of course, very difficult to say in the middle of trying to govern or in the middle of a political campaign. But... I think that the, the, the very closeness of elections at this point makes it extremely difficult for politicians to see their way out of this kind of mess. I think it would take somebody with a real vision, with a kind of medium and long-term vision for the country to say, ultimately, we need to think about how to appeal to more and more people rather than how to barely win. And part of what that means is that your argument to voters has got to be not about why the other party shouldn't be in power, which is the most natural way to argue at the moment, and the way that most politicians approach most voters, but about what America could be uh, a generation from now if we get things right today. That also can be a winning formula if you do it in the right way. And it can be a winning formula that reaches beyond the narrow confines of this 50-50 politics. I think there is a political argument there, but obviously it's not the simple argument and it's not always the easy one.
1: Yeah, so so let's come back because at the end of the day, as they say, it's all that's fine, but you still have to win the election. Um, One of the one of the realities of our political situation today is that the, the fastest growing political segment are those people who call themselves independents. And you always say, well, you might think that would uh, appeal to actually people saying, well, we should, I I need to go persuade this big block of unaffiliated people. But my experience has been those people that think of themselves as independents divorce themselves from the primary process Mm -hmm. where the decisions are made. And so, I guess the the question is could is there room is there this kind of uh you know group of people who are persuadable but nobody is reaching to them that really could uh if the right person would would sing the right song really could say I've had enough I'm so frustrated and exhausted I've got to participate in a primary process one way or the other because yeah. that's cuz who's going to determine who are who our candidates are, is there room, whether it be somebody on the left or somebody on the right, or somebody to persuade those people to actually come out and then change the circumstance you're talking about?
2: So we certainly have to acknowledge that there are fewer such people than there were in the middle of the 20th century. Um, And so you're not going to have massive swings where Uh, you you have a kind of 64 followed by 68, a massive Democratic landslide and then a Republican landslide. That kind of thing, our, our, our politics, our culture really is more partisan and polarized than it used to be. But there are many more such voters than our politics seems to assume. And you can see that in election results too. We do have swings back and forth. Congress swings back and forth almost every election. And presidential elections swing a fair amount too. As you say, the challenge is those voters those voters who will vote for a Democrat one time and a Republican the next time, tend not to participate in the primary of either party. And that means that the primaries select candidates who are not likely to be most appealing to those voters. Um, And that should lead us to think structurally, should lead us to think about incentives and about institutional design uh, about how the parties select candidates, for example, ten years ago, I would have told you that I think that ranked choice voting is a kind of gimmick that you know that that, that isn 't worth our time i 've changed my mind about that. I think something like ranked choice voting in the primary that creates a strong incentive for politicians to be everybody's second choice might actually help to create some dynamics that make for better candidates in the general election. And you see it happen sometimes. You see it in the Virginia governor's race this past year, for example. When the party makes its choice that way, you tend to end up with candidates who are going to be better at appealing to a broader swath of people. I think both parties have got to start thinking in this direction in terms of how do we change the processes, the procedures, the mechanisms by which we make these choices so that we can overcome what I think we now have to acknowledge was the mistake of moving to primaries. We're not gonna reverse that mistake. Nobody's gonna say, well, we should go back to a party committee choosing candidates. That's not gonna happen and we should be realistic about that. But the question is, how do you move forward from where we are now? And I think we do have to be experimenting and they would be experiments. We don't know how they'll turn out at the state level um, with different ways of selecting candidates to see whether these allow parties to uh, put before the public more appealing people who can appeal to broader coalitions. Again, it requires both parties to see that what they're doing right now isn't working, that at the moment they are losing, not winning.
1: Well, I think you're, the, the argument I always make to people when they say, you know, why would you even talk about that is, well, how's, how's, what, how's it working, what we're doing now? I, I, I yeah. think that's valid. But I also would say, that, I mean, I think you're right. The question I would ask is this, the people who can make those decisions, uh to, even to put it on a ballot, like in a lot of states like ours, it it would have to be approved by the state legislature to go on the ballot, or it might have to be approved by that party's executive committee, um, which depends, but neither of, both of those groups would probably, on the right and the left, would probably say, I personally like the way it is and so the question is, how do we get past people that say, well, I'm in the position I'm in now because of the current way we do it. Why would I ever want to change it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of what that requires is getting these ideas into circulation so that there's some pressure, there's some public interest, there's some uh, reason for them to talk about this. Because as you say, what we're saying are things that are going to have to be done by the people who are benefiting from the current system. And they would have to change that system on the premise that it could work better for them or work better for their party or work better for their state or, or, or the country And to get to a place where that kind of decision could be made requires these ideas to be in public circulation. The party committee is not going to do this on its own. Uh, You know, unless it's in a very peculiar kind of situation. And we could point again to the Virginia governor's race where they just thought this will get us a better candidate in a purple state, somebody more likely to win the general election. And they were right. But in a lot of places, that's not the calculation they're gonna make because they're literally the people whose own jobs are on the line here and they're now winning. So they don't wanna change the system under which they're winning. I think that requires this to be an issue of public discussion and debate so that they have to answer the question, why shouldn't we change the system to get candidates who could help our party win a broader mandate? Um, And then they've gotta think about more than themselves. If there's voter pressure here, then they have to take that question more seriously. That means this is a long-term process of making arguments, of, uh, of, of reformers trying to get in the game and talking about how the system could be better. I think you begin by, by approaching voters saying, look, it doesn't have to be this bad. And a lot of Americans now would be open to the argument that our system is never going to be perfect, but it doesn't have to be this bad. And there are ways to improve it that are both achievable And practical, and you know, right now, a lot of these ideas are not well known or not understood in that way, and so we've got a lot of work to do. I
1: want to jump. uh, You also had a recent article that uh, I took a a little bit personally, uh, saying, "Hey, the baby boomers have been on stage." Somebody who's a a tail end member of that generation. uh, uh, I'm teasing, but I'm curious. Tell us what, what what's the argument about? We've the baby boomers have had their turn. It's time for them to step off the stage politically.
2: Yeah, you know, baby boomers is a broad category. And, and what I really have in mind are basically th- th- those of our leaders who were born in the 1940s. Some of them aren't even baby boomers. They're older than that. Um, and some are the oldest baby boomers. Uh, you know, our president is going to turn 80 this year. Um, the, the His predecessor, who might just run again, is going to turn 76. And the Speaker of the House is 82. The Republican leader in the Senate is 80. This is, first of all, very unusual. It's an odd thing. And it's not the case that that's happening because it's just sort of become their turn, that we empower the oldest generation and now these folks are the oldest generation. They've actually been in power for a long time. You know, Bill Clinton was elected in 1992 and Donald Trump elected in 2016 are exactly the same age. And so is George W. Bush, by the way. They were all born in the summer of 1946. Um, And when you start looking around and not only at our politics, but at a lot of our institutions, you find that that people of just about that age, the very beginning of the baby boom and a couple of years before, people born in the mid-40s or or thereabouts, have been running a lot of our institutions for a long time. Now, there's nothing illegitimate about that. I mean, these are people who have devoted a lot of their lives to public service or other forms of service, and we should be grateful for that. But I think it's worth our seeing that their particular disposition, their particular life experience, their particular mindset has created a, a dynamic in our politics by which we treat the era of their youth, the America of the late 1950s, early 1960s, as though it were a norm. And a huge amount of our politics is about promising people to return to that time, to that time when, you, when Americans had a lot of uh, confidence in our leaders and institutions, to that time when our society was very cohesive and consolidated. when uh, the economy was more regulated, which the left likes, when the culture was more tradition-minded, which the right likes. The the trouble is that period was not normal. It's not as though American life was like that until the mid 60s and then it changed. That period after World War II until the mid 60s was very, very unusual because of the war, because of, of mobilization around the depression frankly, immigration laws that had been in place since the 20s and were not changed until the end of the 60s meant that there was less cultural diversity and less immigration in America at that point than at any time before or since. Um, and it created a, a kind of moment that is not, in fact, repeatable. Right. The nostalgia we have for that time because of people who were young in that time, right, so including people who were too young to have experienced that time, seem to miss the America of the early 60s. That keeps us from thinking about the future. And If you if you listen to our political conversations now, to me, what stands out most about them is that they're not about the future and they need to be about how to make America stronger, not about who screwed things up. And I think part of that requires a generational transition.
1: I agree. And I think it also takes a different kind of leader, because the easiest thing to do when you're running is to run against the other person. Here's why they messed up. Here's why you shouldn't elect them. Here's why you should elect me. But i think it does take a different type of leader to do that so i I have three final questions okay the the first is this uh let's just say like as we said earlier there are no uh party elders but let's just say the the party elders came to you and said we you're right we don't have a long-term strategy we need to elect somebody who's going to focus on solving problems who's going to quit looking uh in the review mirror and is going to appeal to the people who are just frustrated and exhausted by the whole process. If if there were party elders who who could come to someone and we both admit they're not, but then they came to you, what would you say? Here's where I would start. Here's how I would do that.
2: I think I'd start to do that by talking to people about the concrete issues that our politics now leaves to the side. And oddly enough, some of these are very central issues. For example, cost of living issues confronting young families. If you think about that set of issues, In a sense, those are obvious political issues. And in a way, we talk about them. We talk about inflation. We talk about, (coughs) excuse me, but we don't talk practically about how to reduce the cost of childcare, about how to reduce the cost of housing, about how to reduce the cost of education. We don't talk practically about how to reduce the, the kinds of costs they face, childcare, housing, healthcare. And I think in a lot of those areas, there is actually a kind of unifying thread that public policy in those areas now tends to subsidize demand while reducing supply. It tends to regulate the supply of healthcare, of housing, of education at the local level, as well as the state and national. And then it tends to provide subsidies for people to buy those things. That's a formula for raising cost of living. I think either party could talk about that and neither party really does. So there's an obvious natural way in there. I think also we have to think differently about tech, um, which we now kind of talk vaguely about, but usually in pretty embarrassing ways. And we don't really think about what it means for the life of an average family, that the kids are using social media, that, uh, that, that, that tech companies have a certain kind of power over us as consumers and as citizens. We're only beginning to get our hands around what that should mean as a set of policy issues. But I think politicians looking to the future need to do that work. And I think these kinds of issues that are clearly central to American families but that we have a kind of older vocabulary for, that we don't talk about in a way that speaks to people's contemporary experience are where the the opportunity really presents itself to begin with.
1: Uh, Well said, well said. And we we haven't jumped off and talked about the role of social media and all of this that you've talked about, but I think one of the points I would make is uh, Twitter is a little bit like um, a political meeting and the loudest voices whether it be on the right or the left, or those ones that dominate the conversation. And politicians, as much as we're supposed to be good at reading the room and trying to figure out where people are, we really don't. We really are going to hear those most persistent, loud voices, which don't really represent the, the body. I think that's
2: absolutely right. And and there's a way that social media really confuses everybody who observes the the, the public arena, into thinking that this small group of people who spend their time on Twitter complaining about politics are the public. And it's it's very hard to say, well, these are a couple of thousand people. What do, I, what, is, what do my actual constituents think? And social media is at the very heart of everything we've talked about here. I think it has a lot to do with our failures of unity, broadly speaking, in America now.
1: There's no question. One of the things that I always tell, tell people is um, the – when you're when you're in elected office you can't help but i mean one of the good things is your democracy works right and and you try yep. to when you go out and run for office and you knock on thirty thousand doors you know to run for mayor of your hometown or whatever you kind of figure out after a while that what people care about and you really learn most of them are care about getting their kid to soccer practice and getting dinner on the table and making certain their job is paying uh for what For their families' needs, et cetera. Yeah. We get misled when we just start to hear those loud voices um, and it doesn't serve us or democracy. Absolutely. All right. Let let me, I've got got two last questions I want to make certain um, that that we we get to. Um, What, if anything, gives you a glimmer of hope? We we talk about what's wrong. Give me, give us a reason for optimism before we end this.
2: You know, I'll give you a strange answer to that question. The, The source of my hope is the fact that people recognize that things are in a bad place. There're not a lot of Americans now who will say this is great. Let's just keep doing this in our politics and I you know I love every minute of it. But just about everybody recognizes that something's gone wrong in our political culture. And I think that that creates an openness both among voters and among and among leaders to trying new things to to looking for ways to do better. And even 10 years ago, that would not have been as obvious to nearly as many people. And so I think the fact of our recognition of these challenges that confront unity, exactly the things you're working on, is the reason why I think there is cause for hope and why I think we will get ourselves together and try and experiment with different things. And some of them will work and some won't. But we know now, we really know, almost all of us, that this is a moment to try different ways of holding the country together.
1: I actually think you're right. my experience has been when I go to political groups, people who primarily get their identity from their politics, um, the sense is we 're good they're evil, we yep. have to stop them to save the country. When I go talk with you know normal people who 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 are doing living their day to day lives they're saying i 'm just frustrated and exhausted by all this i 'm ready for something different, and my hope is like yours that um, the right leadership will come forward to say, uh, "Agree. Yeah, we need to. We need to sing a different song." Okay. Last question. Uh, w- one of the things we're about at the at this Vanderbilt project is unity, not unanimity. We we, we don't think we're all supposed to agree that that's the the uh, the competitive fabric is what makes us better. Uh, and so we're not saying we don't want everybody, even on this on our team, we don't uh, we don't all see things eye to eye all the time. But with that foundation in mind, uh, is, can you pinpoint one thing that sparks unity within America right now, whether it be a sentiment, an activity, a yeah. person, a policy? Is there something – in Tennessee, we can all unite behind Dolly Parton. That's kind of like everybody <laughs> – I, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that, but everybody loves Dolly. But what, is there something for the country that we can unite behind?
2: It's probably almost true that the country can unite behind Dolly Parton, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I would say that, in a way, that the, that idea of unity, not unanimity, points me at least in the in the direction of what I think we are unified by, which is if you if you look at American life not from the top down but from the bottom up, you actually find that people agree about a lot of things. A commitment to family and community is where just about everybody begins. Now that means different things to different people, so it isn't it isn't unanimity. But the idea that we all have to begin from a commitment to the well being of our families and the well being of our neighbors in our community actually is much more of a starting point than we might imagine. Um, when we think about practical challenges, rather than thinking very abstractly about political issues theoretically in the big picture, it's a reason why local politics so often feels better than national politics right now, because it's about real challenges that real people confront. And you have to work together to address those kinds of problems. And so I think the, the, the fact of our common commitments to the families we come from and the communities we're part of is a reason to think that Americans really can work together and that we don't have to all agree about everything. And life can be different in Tennessee than it is in California. And that's OK. Um, that's that's really ultimately what's necessary for a, a, a recovery of unity in our country.
1: I love your point. I've i always say everybody should have to be mayor of their hometown before they can run for federal office because yeah. you just at the end of the day you do see problems much differently thank you for joining us this has been a great conversation i've I've loved the insight like i said i've been a fan of yours for a long time well
2: same here thank you very much
1: i i don't know that our country's ever needed a time more or had a time more when we needed people who could think clearly uh, about how do we get past our current situation. I'm grateful that you're one of those folks. So thank
2: Same here, thank you.